And I think companies have a really bad habit of saying, oh, Joe, but you're the best sales guy we have. And we have an opening for a sales manager. We're going to make you the sales manager because you're our best sales guy. No. On today's episode of Everyday Leadership, I have a friend sitting with me. The new friend, actually. And we discuss some of his background and history of him. Currently, he's a lead and delivery strategist at Google. He's got 20 plus years working for organizations such as Time Warner. Um, he spent some time at Google Fiber. And he's also an assistant coach at San Antonio's finest. FYI, he's also gonna. So you know it's gonna be a great conversation already. But today we talk about how his mom saved him from a life of crime. Even though at that point in time he did not appreciate it, but it made such a massive difference to him talk about going to college on a track um, scholarship and why it actually felt like a holiday despite having to do what it took to survive talk about him being a man of the house at 13 how we had to drop out of school for six months and dealing with guilt his mom being an amazing role model we discuss how he wanted to be a teacher until he found how much they made but interestingly enough 20 25 plus years later that's kind of come full circle and he's operating in that field just in a very, very different way. It's interesting how that keeps on happening time and time again. Talk about separation of church and state and why it does not, that does not work. Talk about unlearning bad behavior. How his baby girl helped him to see himself and start to break down some generational curses. Difference between being a manager and a leader. Some great, amazing life lessons that sports has taught him, both as being an assistant coach and obviously having scholarship and running track at college for himself. We talk about detractors and why you need to get away from people who can tear down your dreams. We talk about the amazing program he's involved in as a basketball coach and how that's a college preparatory program. Using basketball, don't let basketball use you. Being a cook instead of being a chef, what that really, really means, and so much more. I really love this conversation with Chris Anderson, and I know you're going to as well. So let's jump into today's episode of Everyday Leadership. How are you doing, Chris? Hello, my friend. How are you this Monday morning? I'm doing well. I'm feeling blessed. You know, it's a, it's a bank holiday out there in the state. You give up some of your time just to come and chop it up with me. So I am, I am feeling grateful. I'm feeling blessed. Oh, anytime I can hang out with the amazing Chopin is a, is a <laughs> thank you for inviting me. I appreciate this. Yeah, for real, it's an absolute pleasure. And um, I guess that as always, I'm, I'm going to lean back. I'm, I'm curious, before you stepped into the world of fiber and, and tech and leading people what was what were the ambitions and aspirations for a young chris oh a young chris a little bit of background i come from a part of houston texas that was kind of inundated in that uh, drug infestation that happened in the 80s and so for me it was just really getting out of the neighborhood alive in my little small neighborhood part of my neighborhood it was about four streets. And on that four streets, there were about 10, 11 boys that we all were around the same age as five to 13 years old. And four of those are myself and my three brothers. 
besides two others, everyone else has uh, passed away or in jail. So that was the kind of lifestyle that I was trying to be a part of, but also trying to stay away from. And thankfully, I had a wonderful mother who was an educator. And she saw a little Chris trying to be something that he should not be. In my high school years, she took me out of public school, put me in a very prestigious Catholic boy school to keep me away from that environment. And I hated her for it for the first two years. But she literally saved my life. She will always be my on earth angel. I love her dearly for it. But when I went to that school, got into organized sports and fell in love with running. Basketball was always my favorite love, but running, I was actually pretty decent at and was able to go to college on a track scholarship and changed uh, life for for me and I think for some other folks in my family. On my dad's side, I was the first person to ever go to college on my dad's side of the family. Uh, on my mom's side, it was that's everybody did it, right? Uh, but on my on my dad's side, I was the first one. And now becoming a college graduate on my dad's side of the family is commonplace. Hopefully I was a little bit of a role model without even knowing it, but happy that that path came in front of me. Mm-hmm. Did you feel any pressure having a track scholarship for college? I don't want to say it was never pressure. I would say it was almost a holiday. My dad was out of the picture when I turned 13. And so I became the quote unquote man of the house. So my daily ritual was getting up at 530 in the morning to help my mom get my five brothers and sisters ready for school. And then riding the city bus an hour and a half to school, go through a whole day of school, a whole day of athletic practice, ride the bus back home an hour and a half. By that time, my mom is dropping off the other five kids so she can go to her second job. So now I'm helping kids with their homework. I was cooking, cleaning. My mom would get home. I would feed her dinner. Then I would start my homework and I would go to bed around midnight, one o'clock in the morning, get up at 536, do it all over again. So to go to college and only have two classes on Monday, Wednesday, Friday and one class Thursday, Friday, (laughs) Thursday, uh, Tuesday, Thursday. I thought I was in heaven. So, uh, so no pressure from, from a 17 year old kid at that point. Right. But I knew that representation mattered, And I knew that my family was very proud of me. And so I think more than that, I didn't want to let them down because I could see the pride that, Oh my God, look at little Chris. He went to, he went to college. What were your, at that point in time, were you thinking about taking track further outside of? Oh, no, 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 no. I, I, I knew my limitations, right? I was never the fastest. I was just fast enough. And so this was just a, a way for me to get to an end, right? It got me out of my neighborhood. It got me into a new environment. It allowed me to go to to school relatively for free because my mom did not have the money. She had five other kids to take care of. Uh, She dropped me off at school my freshman year, bought me groceries at the local grocery store. And that was the last time I saw money from my mom. 
and I wouldn't have had it any other way. She had other miles to feed. So everything was on me to try to figure out. So I ran track. I did work study. So you get paid by the school to work in the library or make copies for for uh, professors, uh, worked in the game room when we used to have actual games where you put quarters in them and they weren't on your phones. And so I did whatever I needed to do to survive in that environment. And uh, again, just always glad I had that opportunity. Being uh, the eldest, did you feel like, okay, now I'm here, now I'm at college, my mom's doing what she's doing, she's writing for the others. Did you ever look back and like, I wish I can go back and, and help them out? Or was it more thinking forward around setting yourself up so you can help them out in the future? Oh, Shopa, you give me too much credit. Like I was that smart. So Terry, can you Oh, I'm going to go and, and do well so I can go help them out. No, I was feeling, I was as the eldest, as the person who was taking, helping take care of the household, I felt extreme guilt. And my mom had extreme pressure on her, and especially after I left, that she ended up actually having a stroke. So I dropped out of school for six months to go back home to help her. She lost the whole right side of her body. Thankfully, she recovered. But at the end of the six months, I said, Mom, I'm just going to stay. I'm going to be here. You need help. She goes, baby, these are not your kids. This is not your life. You need to go back and do what's right for you. And I'm not going to allow you to stay here to be my partner because you're not my partner. You're my child. And again, just a woman way beyond wisdom. She's an amazing, very amazing woman. Which just sounds man. So your mom was in despite what she had going on with her. It's kind of pushing you to like, you need to do you. Right. Don't let this become your responsibility. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. She really easily could have said, yes, yeah, stay here. Help me out. But that's just not who she is. And she's just raised six amazing kids. And I just don't have the words for her. So when you were at college and you went back and you were studying, what were your plans for the future then? My plans was to be an elementary school teacher. I wanted to be like my mom. I remember taking courses in college and I would literally be the only male in the class because male teachers then were very few and far between. Even now. And then, yeah, even now, right? And so my, between my junior and senior year, I found out how much teachers actually make. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, that was it. That was it. I actually went into the hotel motel, the hospitality industry, because San Antonio, where I went to school, was really big in tourism. I became a sales manager at a hotel for about three years, a little less than three years. And then telecom came calling and I was able to succeed in telecom for almost 28 years with Time Warner for uh, right at 20 years, about 19 and some change. And then at Google Fiber for, for eight years. So telecom was a great experience for me. It allowed me to, you know, get married, have two children, buy a house, 
put both of my kids through private school in high school, just like I went through. I wanted them to have that same experience. Telecom was, was good to me. You said you were in Time Warner for the best part of 20 years, and that can easily become your identity. So I was curious, what was it like when you finally made a move from that environment, being there for so long? There's a, a lot of things that kind of go through your head that makes you wonder about how do you want to make your next move? And for me, I had the pleasure at Time Warner to go through a number of different roles. So I did everything from installing to supervising, to dispatch, to construction, to sales. I ran a group for door-to-door sales. I ran a group of salespeople who sold to apartment owners. So I did a little bit of everything there. So people always say, well, when did you do at Time Warner? So I did everything but clean the bathrooms. Nope, I actually did that a couple of times too. So in that, in, in that sense, Time Warner wasn't like boring. It's not like I stayed in the same position for 20 years. I was able to move around. I was able to learn a lot from a lot of different people. And I think that helped me uh, grow not only as a leader in the organization, but also as a person. I am not the same person I was at 21, and that's a good thing. And that's a, a lot of the things that I think some leaders do is they think that there's this separation between church and state. And what I found was the good things that I learned about being a husband and a father, I was able to bring over to my management or leadership style at Time Warner. And a lot of the leadership trainings that I was able to attend, I was able to bring that back over to be a better father, a better husband. And so I think people make the mistake to try to separate those things and uh, they shouldn't bring the best qualities of yourself to everything that you do. I'm super curious. What was 21-year-old Chris like to Chris that left 20 years later? (laughs) Some of the key things you can pull out. Oh, God. I don't know if I can say it on this. This I, I was still at that time... I was still angry. I was still hurt. And I was still a kid. I think today, even, we see these kids now, we think that they're adults, not understanding that they have a lot of developmental things that they have to go through. But I was also the great things that my mom and dad did teach me. I was loyal. I was loving. If you were on my side, you were on my side. But because I, I lived in such a stressful world for so long in my childhood, I grew up with some attributes that you really don't want to have in your adult life. Not trusting, reading folks for who they are the first time you meet them versus allowing them to know who they are. And some of those things that you go through, you learn to survive because of that environment that you're in. Like I always used to kid myself or I used to tell people, I'm really good at reading people because in my neighborhood, if a person was walking up to you, you had about five seconds to realize, are they just going to say what's up or are they going to rob you? Right? But that's not reading people. That's just trusting your 
gut with the different things that they are showing you that could be potentially harmful. But that's the kind of, and again, I'm not a clinical psychologist, but that's the kind of PTSD that folks who come from stressful environments have to go through sometimes. And so I had to unlearn a lot of that. I had to learn a lot of bad behavior that I didn't see as bad at the time and and had to look through that. I'll give you a very embarrassing story of how that happened for me. My daughter was about four years old and I asked her to clean up her room. And she, I went into her room a couple of minutes later and she was watching TV. She had a little, one of those little bitty TVs with a VCR on the bottom of it so she could watch her Disney tapes, right? And she's sitting there watching her Disney movie. And I got so angry. I had such a short temper back then. I took the TV, pulled it out of the wall. I broke the outlet. Now I'm mad because I broke the outlet because I'm angry. So I take the TV to my room. I throw the TV on my bed. It bounces off the bed and goes right into the wall and breaks the sheetrock. And so now I'm really incensed. But then I turn around and there's this four-year-old girl just totally frightened. Just, I can see that I literally broke her heart. And that's when I said, what am I doing? Where is this anger coming from? And that was the first time I was introduced to therapy. I went to group counseling about for anger management on my own because that little girl helped me realize I needed to change. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's what I tell people that you have to be willing to take heart looks at yourself and being willing to change and see things as they are now and not as you thought they were. And that insist in that story, I mean, a lot of times what you hear is because of what's happened in, in the past and I'm carrying that anger with me, you kind of just brush it aside or you you ignore it. I mean, it must have been something that was already bubbling up that made you actually look at your daughter and look at what happened and be like, I need to do something about this, especially even at this point in time, going to therapy in our neighborhoods and in our, that's not the thing to do. You don't talk about therapy, let alone go to therapy. So there's a number of different elements in that way, just where you've navigated. So I'm just curious, was that something that was already bubbling up for you where you were like, you saw some signs previously and you ignored and then this was one that just kind of pushed you to go do something I about think, it? I don't know if it pushed me or not. Maybe it was subconscious, potentially. I don't remember saying either this has to change, this has to change. But I just remembered the overall feeling, the overwhelming feeling is I don't want to be like this anymore. So I remember I told you I went to this private boys high school. I had eight fights my freshman year. Come on. They should have kicked me out. They should have kicked me out. Thankfully, I had a great counselor who told me to channel some of that energy into track. I had a great mom and I had a great assistant principal who was a priest. And I guess he prayed for me every day. (laughs) So, yeah, I I think it was just like, I'm tired of living like this. Mm -hmm. The stress of that anger is a toll on folks. So, it is. 
and a lot of us still have him, still carry with us and he shows up in different areas of our lives and it's like, what, what is that? Why is that? And being able to actually stop and reflect and do something about it, like being intentional around it is, is so, so key because it makes an impact, not just in work, like I said, even like at home with our families, with our spouses, with our kids. If you want to break some of those cycles, it's really, really important that we recognize where they come from in the first place and do something about it. Exactly right. The cycles are dangerous and they keep people in places they don't necessarily want to be, but you have to work to get out of them. You have to swim harder when you're in a bad current. It's unfair, potentially, but it is where we are. But once you get out of that current, let me tell you, I'm floating down the river now and it's because of the hard work that I've put in over the years. And I got to let myself be okay with that. Did you share with others at that point in time where you did start going to therapy that you were going to therapy or did you kind of keep that to yourself? Oh, I kept it to myself. Oh my God. To, to tell somebody that you were going to therapy in my family. Oh my God. <laughs> you were the weakest person in the world. Right. And I'm glad that, you know, we've been able to change. So my brothers and my cousin, he's like a, a fourth brother. I mean, everywhere we went, he went. So about eight years ago, we started men's weekend for my family on my dad's side. So my grandmother had eight kids, six boys and two girls. And then of course they've had kids, right? Me, my cousins and all. So we started something called men's weekend. So if you are a descendant of my grandmother on my dad's side and you're a male older than 16, we get together every year in October and we come and we talk and we talk about therapy. We talk about financial wellness. We talk about family. We talk about men's health, you know, in the African-American community, especially the African-American community, you know, going to get a prostate exam is like, you know, pulling teeth. And so how do we change how people look at that? We talk about biases and prejudice that we have. So growing up, very, very big homosexual bias, right? We use terms that shouldn't be used. And so we talk about those types of things. And I don't think the family has ever been closer because of that. And at first we thought, oh, we're just going to get together and laugh at each other. But when we saw the opportunity to bring betterness, it's just been amazing. And we all look forward to coming to this weekend every weekend now. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. It sounds so uh, open and real and vulnerable and you're just sharing the different elements of, of your life in a way that typically, generally speaking, a lot of guys do not do. Yeah. And it's changed the environment, right? I used to be one of the first to say, I love you. And when I saw my family in person, Hey man, I love you. Talk to you next time. Or I'm on the phone with you. Okay, man, talk to you later. Love you. The generation older than me would always go, mm-hmm, gotcha. All right. <laughs> right. Like, like it's, it, dude, you're not going to make me say I love you. And now we wrestle to say, I love you first. Right. <laughs> 
And it's, it's just brought this level of peace and respect throughout the whole family. I think we're better husbands, we're better partners, we're better cousins, uncles, nephews because of it. You said it earlier on at the start, like hopefully you are a role model and just listening to you talk and share how your own experience and how you go to counseling has now led to, because I can see the link from the creation of these things down the line, which is then have an impact on both the older and the younger generation coming through. It kind of goes back to that whole multiplier effect of when you work on yourself, Mm. it has an impact on the wider community around you. Absolutely. Evil is evil, but goodness, man, goodness is goodness. And when you have that goodness, uh, it seems to want to spread. You just have to make sure you're doing it for the right reasons. And I see that a lot of times in the difference between a leader and a manager, right? It's like leaders want to do it for the right reason. Managers want to do it because they want to be seen. They want to be heard. They want the title. Yeah. Titles are not for me. Never been one of those folks that, oh, call me the executive director of A, B, and C. It's, it's like, how can I serve the people that are working with me? Not for me, with me. And you see that I tie it a lot back to athletics. Athletics show you sometimes how to be a leader, how servitude leadership is the best way to do it, right? You got to come in and you have to be strong when you need to. You lay back when you need to. You learn how to be a team. You learn how to work together. You learn to find everyone's weaknesses. You learn to find everybody's strengths and you lean on those strengths. And I love that because of, of, of sports and it sports has taught me a lot of life lessons that I've carried with me today. You ran track. When you think about track, apart from relays, it's an individual sport. So listen to you talk about the team and the dynamics and, and leading and the fact that it was predominantly an uh, individual sport. I'm curious where that correlation kind of came from. It's an individual race, but it's not an individual sport. When you're practicing, you're practicing against your teammate. You're learning tips from them. You're learning tips from you. You're pushing each other in practice to go better, faster, stronger, right? You're, when people are running their race, unless you're like really in the zone with, because you're racing next, you have to get the mindset. You're clapping. You're in the middle of the track. You're at your teammates starting line. You know, sometimes you can even run with them down the track going, go, go, go. Like, it, it is not, you know, even though you're running an individual race, it's not an individual sport. And I think a lot of people get that wrong about track. It is a huge family, uh, a huge collaborative uh, group that just comes together and tries to do the best because at the end, you're still trying to win the team medal as well. But not only are you doing something individually, you're an individual contributor for your company, but you're also trying to do something that makes the company better or your team better to get to the goal, the OKR that you have for that particular company at the time. So what are some of the other major lessons that sports and athletics have kind of taught you? Curious. You kind of brushed upon it earlier is back in 2007, 
I was coaching my daughter in basketball and I thought she was pretty good. She wasn't, <laughs> but that's what dads think. <laughs> we all think our kid is better than what they really are. And a gentleman came up to me and said, hey, look, I, I have this team that I'm, I'm starting and I would love to have your daughter on our team. And at the time, my daughter is in the seventh grade. She's five, seven with a six foot wingspan. And so and ran like an antelope. And so he goes, look, we can fix everything else. And so we bring her into this organization. And this guy is a master. He is an absolute master at what he does. Uh, shout out to Ray. How you doing, Ray, if you listen to this? And got her to be, by the time she was a senior in high school, one of the top 100 guards in the nation by ESPN and ended up going to Loyola University in, in New Orleans and just got inducted into their Athletic Hall of Fame there this past spring. So not bad, right? And in 2012, right before she was a, uh, going to be a senior, he asked me to join the staff. And just a lot of leadership lessons from that, right? Learning how to run my own race. Why am I comparing myself to other folks? I need to compare me to me. Am I better than I was yesterday? What am I doing to get better than I was yesterday? Am I putting the work in to get better? Uh, a lot of that stuff is something, the things that we teach our young ladies on how to be ready for the next level, right? An old, old saying in the African-American community, uh, be ready so you don't have to get ready, right? We always said, you know, be persistent. If you're going to do it, get it done and get all the distractions out of your way. If this is something that you really want, is this your really your passion is to play basketball at the next level? How are you going to get there? If this is really what you want at your job, what are you going to do to get to that next level? What courses are you going to take? What classes are you going to be part of? What project are you going to be a part of? You have to put in the hours. There are no shortcuts. I am at Google now because of the 20 years I spent at Time Warner, period. I put in the work and the work helped me get to where I am. I think one of the biggest things also are detractors. We teach our young ladies, if anybody's trying to stop you from your dream, you need to get them out of your circle. And so, you know, what does that look like? How can we help you make sure that you're focused? Because Shelby, I wish I could remember. I think it's from Harvard, but I think it says something like 83% of all female executives, president CEOs played sports. Wow. Big time. Right. And so we want these young ladies to be ready for those positions in the long term. We always tell our young ladies, you know, use basketball. Don't let basketball use you. Right. They are probably. 400,000 girls who play high school basketball. Only 4,000 of those, right, are going to go and play college basketball. And out of that, maybe 400 will play professionally. And I'm talking about all over the world, not just the WNBA. So you're saying, you know, one out of every 400 girls is going to play this game professionally. 
So if you have a chance to allow this game to get you out of college debt free, we're not like England. We have to pay it out of our own pocket over here. You're right. We're doing as well now. Okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> not as much. Not as much as you like to do. But do right. <laughs> uh, then do that. I mean, my daughter was lucky enough to go to a college that was $65,000 a year just for school. We're not talking about room and board. We're not talking about books. And she came out pretty much debt free. That's what the goal is for us in the organization is to try to make those types of dreams happen. And when you're talking about young ladies who financially wouldn't have found a way to go to college without this, it's amazing. We have a player right now. She just graduated two weeks ago. There's times at her house in high school, she didn't have running water or electricity. And now she's graduating from college. You can't get better than that. You can't get better than that. So it's amazing. I love that. Even that mantra of using basketball, donating basketball, use you. I think it's super important because, I mean, sports is a major thing in the community, in the culture. And a lot of times it's like, oh, I want to get to NBA or WNBA or those kind of aspirations. You don't stop and think, well, actually, how can I use this as a vehicle that helps me to make progress in other areas of my life? That doesn't have to be just my limit. The other things I can do by utilizing this and coming out of university or college debt-free, that's massive. Man, that's organization. What you all do out there, San Antonio's, man, hats off to you guys, man. Yeah, need yeah. more of those kind of programs. Great program with great folks and at the head of it, Ray and, and Chauncey and Mike and myself and some other wonderful volunteers who come out and uh, make sure that these girls have the right direction and that their dreams, you know, come true. It's been amazing. Great 10 years so far. What are some of the... um struggles that some of those ladies have come out with because even when you have something ahead of you like that which seems amazing some like a great opportunity like you said there's a lot of hard work dedication especially when you're coming from backgrounds and families where no one else in that environment has gone to college they don't necessarily know what it takes or you have friends who are growing up in the hood effectively and again are complete path to you so trying to stay on track and stay focused is not necessarily the easiest thing to do. Right, right. It's And then that's why we recruit parents more than we recruit kids. Ah, okay. Right? The parents have to buy into the process. They have to understand this is not a program just for kids to kind of roll out the ball and go have fun. It is a college preparatory organization. And so just like you go to a college preparatory school where you're going to take honors classes, you're going to take calculus in the 10th grade, that's what this is. This is that type of program where we are looking for folks who are dedicated, who really want to to go to that next level. And so the parents have to buy in first and they have to trust the process that we put them through. The other thing we purposely done is put together a very commutative type of organization. So you're going to have people from all over the spectrum in the organization. And so each person 
Their job now is to pick up a part of somebody else. That person has great study habits. Let me learn from them. That person knows, has a great jumper. Let me learn from them. This person has a little oomph in her. Where did she get that oomph from? Let me learn from her. She has a little toughness. Let me. And so when you put all of those people in that pressure cooker, you put all of that. Boy, that gumbo comes out tasting so sweet because you've put all of those ingredients in one place and you've put it under pressure. You've put it under all that steam and it just brings out the best of all of those flavors that you have. And the problem with that is, or the problem that can be, is if you put one bad ingredient in there, it can ruin the whole pop. And so we're very, very quick to take that one bad ingredient out. And 99.9% of the time, it's not the young lady. It's the parent. It's the myopic parent like me when Jackie was in the seventh grade thinking, oh, my girl, my baby's good. What are you talking about? My baby's good. <laughs> well, actually, no, she's not that good right now. We, we can fix that, but she's not that good. Or, you know, they want to say, why my baby ain't getting the ball more? Or, hey, you need to shoot more. Or, no, no. We don't come to your office and tell you how to be a tax accountant. Don't come to our office and tell us how to be coaches. Because this is what we do. And we've trained for this. We've taken classes. We've looked at video, thousands of hours of video. We've coached different young ladies at different levels of the game. We've been very lucky to have six all Americans from our program, four USA members. We have, I think, four young ladies in the WNBA now. So we understand what that talent looks like and we understand how we can best bring out the talent in each one of those individual people. And nothing worse than backseat drivers or backseat parents trying to coach. It's like, <laughs> shut up and let the coaches do what they need to do. <laughs> <laughs> When you moved from Time Warner, then you spent some time in Google Fiber, and then you moved over to like the learning and the people side of things. Mm-hmm. What was that transition like for you? Oh, I'm still going through it. I've only been in it for about seven months now. But Chopin, what I did was right before the pandemic, I was working on a five-year plan for the organization. And I really thought to myself, hey, Chris, you don't have a five-year plan. Your five-year plan was like, hey, let me get to 65 so I can retire, right? But that's not a real five-year plan. And I really started thinking about what do I want to do when I grow up? And while telecom has been really good to me and my family, it wasn't what I loved. It wasn't what got me up in the morning. And I didn't want to be a person who woke up at 65 and now I'm a telecom consultant. Again, not that there's anything wrong with that. It just wasn't what kind of fed my desire. And as we talked about a little bit earlier, I wanted to be an elementary school teacher because I wanted to give back. And so I think me coaching is kind of feeling that gap a little bit, right? I'm still able to work with kids. I'm still able to hopefully make an impact. But what do I want to do on top of that? And so for me, when I leave the position that I'm in now, I really would like to go and work for a nonprofit, executive director, or be on a board, something that just really gives back to children. 
And I said, let me go somewhere to help me with those skills. I already have operational skills, but how can I become a person better at influencing and being a better leader? And so joining this program was super scary. I have no experience, technical experience at being a a designer or instructional designer or anything like that. Hopefully people see me as a good leader. And so how can I help others see themselves as a good leader as well and not just a manager, not just a director? Because there's a big difference between those two things. Managing and leading are completely two different animals. Hopefully I can help people see that. And I think companies have a really bad habit of saying, oh, Joe, but you're the best sales guy we have. And we have an opening for a sales manager. We're going to make you the sales manager because you're our best sales guy. No, (laughs) that's not what you need in that position, right? I'd rather go get Michael, who is our fourth best salesperson, but also knows empathy, how to talk to someone, how to get the best out of each person, right? And leave the best sales guy to do what he or she does best. And that's sale. Now, if that person wants to become a leader or manager, yeah, it's our responsibility to get that person to that point. But let's just not automatically just shove somebody in there because they're the best at what they do. In my experience, most of the time, they're not the best leader that you could have put in part, in part of your department or organization. Man, you are one appreciative of the choir, but <laughs> as soon as you said that, I was just like, wouldn't that be, as crazy as it sounds, it would be radical if that is how organizations for and selected people and recognize some of those key skills. I think the last two years, two and a half years in particular with the pandemic has revealed a lot how much those skills are important, especially as a lot of people are now in hybrids or working remote, working digitally. So you need some of those skills that are not in the typical manager way of, of leading or managing. So it's definitely come on more to the forefront, but what you just said right now is, is so important, being able to identify those skills in people. And it's interesting when you say, I have no experience or no technical experience doing this, but then I'm listening to you talk. I'm like, well, actually, not only have you led teams for, for 20 plus years and what you're doing as a coach and um, in that organization, but actually you already identify some of the core principles that it takes to be able to create the kind of leaders that organizations really, really need. So you're way ahead of the game. I am a cook versus a chef. And people always ask me, what, what is that? A cook is somebody who's been in the kitchen all their lives and they know how to cook. They know how to make a great meal. A chef is someone who went to school and is trained in how to cook, right? And knows the science behind why this ingredient goes with this ingredient. My grandmother was a cook. She just, you put her in the kitchen, she'd cook anything and she'll make it taste delicious, right? But she was never trained at the Cardone Blue or what, what have you, right? And that's where I love this new position I'm in because all of the knowledge that I have, I'm starting to see the science behind it. I'm getting introduced to a graduate program, right? Of why the things that I already know, why they're true. And that has been so amazing to me right now. It's one of the things that I love about this new position more than anything. I love getting in front of leaders and giving my story and giving my perspective on how to be a better leader. 
But me learning why the things that I'm saying resonate and are true is super exciting for me as well. Right? Because now I get to read these PhD studies and, uh, and why this works. And I go, oh, okay. I, I know that because I tried it a thousand times. <laughs> I screwed up a thousand times. So that's why I know it works. But oh, this is good science to know that. Now. Yeah. So it's been a wonderful, wonderful journey over the last, you know, six or seven months. That analogy really, really stands out to me for two reasons, in particular. One, because I can, I can relate to you. I'm like that where it's like, I know this, but I don't have the science behind it. And now you're like, yeah, that makes sense. It all comes together. But actually, when you think about some of the, the soul food that we talk about, mm-hmm. where there are no instructions, mm-hmm. it's just being put together in such a loving way where it has been taught and cascaded down through generations. And then you get people who come and try and or you need a pinch of this, a pinch of that, and they're trying to formalize it. And it doesn't taste the same. There's something around being a cook where you can apply that knowledge in a completely different way that makes it more real because you have that experience as opposed to just having the scientific knowledge. And having someone like you who can combine those two areas together is brilliant. And I guess I'm, I'm curious then, how does someone who might be in a completely different technical field and is thinking, oh, I want to step into something new. I want to step into something like you're doing right now. How did they, one, separate that identity they've held for so long, but two, also have the confidence to be able to have conversations with people in that new area, that new space, who might be looking at them like, what are you talking about? You don't have any experience in here. Right. I think the biggest thing is the fear, right? The fear of failure is so strong with folks. I'll give you a story of when I first started at Google. I was about two or three months in and I fly out to Mountain View for a meeting with our team. And we're a relatively new team under Google Fiber. And we go to dinner and it's about 17 of us sitting around a table. And the director at the time says, hey, we're a pretty new team together. Let's go around and say our name, where we went to school and what we're doing for Google Fiber. And we're going to start with this person here. I'll leave his name out because I don't have a signature yet saying I can use his name. So we'll say here and I'm sitting to his left, but we're going to go right. So that means I'm going to be the last person. Ah, No big deal about that. Right. So this person says, hi, I'm such and such. I got my undergrad and my master's in mathematics from Cornell and I run our address database. And then the director says, hi, I'm this director. I got my undergrad from Harvard and I got my Yale law degree and I've been here at Google for 10. And the next person said, I went to Dartmouth and another person across the table go, go green. I went to Dartmouth too. The next person, you know, hi, I went to Columbia. I got my MBA from Columbia when I was 23. Hot. And it goes like this to all Ivy league schools all the way around the table. till we finally get to this one young lady and she goes, I'm sorry. I didn't go to an Ivy League. I went to Stanford. I don't. (laughs) (laughs) And it goes like this all the way around the table till it gets to my immediate boss who says, hi, my name is such and such. And I went to the University of Missouri and I went, oh, thank God, state school. Oh, goodness gracious. So he comes to me. I said, hi, I'm Chris. I work for him. And I went to University of Texas, San Antonio. 
show up at that night. I went back to my hotel room and I literally wrote out my resignation letter. I said, they made a mistake. I do not belong here. This place is way too smart for me. And thankfully, I go to this meeting the next morning because I'm not going to resign because I'm not that dumb. I'm going to go find another job. Hopefully, maybe Tom Water take me back right before I put this resignation in. So I go to this meeting in the morning. It's about six people in the room and we're talking about wiring access and things like that for telecom. And people were talking and I kind of raised my hand, say, um, can I write on that board? And they're like, sure. So I get up there and I start drawing things out. And I say, so y'all have never heard about the Telecommunication Act 1996 that talks about, uh, and I start, and Chope, when I looked around, everyone who was at that dinner the night before was writing down every word that I was saying. You cannot let fear overtake what you're trying to accomplish. And so that broke up my imposter syndrome. And I know we like to throw that term around, but I felt like I did not belong at that point to less than 24 hours, knowing that that was the place that I needed to be. So allow yourself the grace to be okay in uncomfortable situations and even more be okay to fail because failing is in my opinion, the only time you truly learn. I always tell people who I, especially the young ladies I talk to who can't get this dribble down, right? Coach Chris, I can't get between behind. I can't get my between behind. I said, well, you got to keep trying. I said, when did you ever see a baby stand up and start running? They take one step, they fall. They take three steps, they fall. They did have this little crazy looking shuffle and then they fall. No person walks from crawling. Be able to fail. That story is a, it's a really, really powerful one. Because I think far too many of us get into those kind of situations where you listen to the accolades of so many people and straight away like, I don't have that. I don't come from that background. I don't have this. I don't have that. And we completely forget what we do have. We're so focused on what we don't have. And when we actually can lean into what we do have, we realize that actually, you know what? I'm, I'm pretty special. And in fact, I didn't have all that kind of stuff and I got this and they want some of this. So you have even more. <laughs> so you're going you to psych yourself up. You make you realize and recognize that what do you have? That's why I say, what do you have in your hands that you can use rather than what you don't have? And you just kind of give it a great analogy of that. It took me a long time to get there, but I'm proud of myself now, right? And I think when I think back, my great-great-grandmother was a slave. My great-grandmother, who I knew, she didn't pass away until I think I was 11, was a sharecropper. Her daughter, my grandmother, was a cook. She cooked in in a retirement home for years. Dropped out of school when she was in the sixth grade because she was taking care of her 13 brothers and sisters. My dad was a mechanic who barely graduated high school because he had dyslexia. My mom taught him how to read once they started dating. To me, working at Google, and now my daughter is a psychologist and my son is studying psychology in in college. That's the progression that we look for. And I've been able to give myself the grace 
to be proud of myself and my accomplishments and the accomplishments that are coming after me. Took some time to get there, but I'm there now. So I guess my last question would then be, touch that in briefly, how do you then define leadership? So for me, the leadership really has to do with, are you willing to be about the team and not about you or be about the person that you're leading and not about you? Understanding that even as a leader, you're not always right. You only come from your own experiences. You only come from what you've gone through and how can you kind of put that in place of where you are now. It's about as being as real as you can with a person. And so there's this great quote that says, when you have transactions with people, you get transactional people in relationships. So are you just going through the motions or do you actually care about the person that you're interacting with? Do you truly want to be helpful to them? And that's what leaders are. They're helpful to their people. Managers manage people. They tell them what to do, where to go and all. Leaders allow people to find their own path. And then they help them down that path as much as they can. So I always say there's three great qualities of leader. There's gratitude, there's empathy, and there's vision. Some people might call it strategy, but those are the things that you want to make sure that you have as a leader. You want to be always gratitude, have gratitude because you always want to be thankful. You want to be thankful for who you are, for where you are, and how you can actually help the people that you're invested in. And then how do you thank the people who invested in you? Like I can name off names right now. Coach Schwartzbach in high school is the one that got me into track. And he was also my guidance counselor, kept me going. Mark Strama, my mentor here at Google Fiber. I can continue. Uh, Anthony Garcia, he was my mentor at Time Warner. Brad Leppertz, my mentor at Holiday Inn when I worked in hospitality. Like I have all these people who made great impacts on my life and taught me how to be a better person, a better leader, a better friend, employee, all of those things. And how grateful can I be to them for teaching me those lessons and how can I help take those lessons to other folks? So that's my first thing is gratitude. And then secondly, of course, is empathy. As a leader, you're always a a work in progress. You're always trying to learn as much as you're trying to teach. And I think when you do that, people really see that you are trying to be transformable, right? And then I think a lot of times as leaders, we think we can't show emotion, but emotion to me is the thing that bonds us all together. Talking about my daughter and if I get teary or talking about my son and I get teary, I shouldn't be ashamed of that. Something that I'm proud of and that a lot of people will feel the same way. If they have children, they feel the same way about their children, but they're also a child of someone else. So they feel that about how their parents may feel about them. So it kind of brings that connection because again, you're trying to be more than someone who's telling them what to do. You're trying to find a way that you can connect with people on different levels. And then again, I just, I want to be the person that's the cheerleader for folks to be able to, when they're not in the room, remind people 
what they're doing well. I think that's what a good leader does. But also I'm able to tell somebody when they're not doing something so well and give them that real feedback that's not harsh, but necessary, right? You can give someone medicine without hurting them. That's really what I look for. It's just to be the people that I've had in my life, my mom, the gentleman that I talked about earlier, my kids. The best compliment I've gotten in a while, Chopin, was from my little cousin. You remember I said I had a cousin. He's like our brother, right? His daughter. And she said, Cousin Chris, I just need to say this to you. I hope as I get older, she's, she's 22, 23, right? As I get as old as you are, I hope I stay as open-minded as you have been with me and allow myself to see things that other people see because of their experiences. I just thought that was, I, I don't automatically think because I'm older than you, I know better than you. I just have different experiences. And how can those experiences help us both figure out something that works for both of us? And so that was one of the greatest compliments I've gotten in a long time. So appreciate that. I appreciate you you sharing like today. I mean, so many words of wisdom that you just shared with some of those experiences that you've had. The one thing that keeps resonating to me when you say to Lauren, I, I hope I'm a model for others coming up. I'm like, you already are. <laughs> there's so much, there's so much evidence from what you've already shared, but from, from what you do and what you want to step into in the future as well. I mean, people like you are the ones where it is about others and it's about sharing. It's about opening up other people's minds and doing that in a way that invites people in rather than just pushes people out. So I knew, like I said, I knew, I knew at the start that this was going to be a, a great conversation. And the one thing I'm going to do, I'm going to, vote, I'm going to make Chris a little bit, but when we had to stay having this conversation, Chris like, why should I come on? Like, I don't I don't have much to say. <laughs> and I said to Chris, like, come on, man. You got loads of experience. You got loads to be able to share. Just going through some, and that's just some of your life lived experience. So really, really thank you. And I really appreciate you giving up some of your time today just to make this happen. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Thank you for making me feel welcome and warm. Again, he's not kidding. I said, I've listened to your <laughs> podcast. You have CEOs and directors and business owners. Why would you want little old me? And thank you for giving me that opening and that grace. I, I, I really appreciate it. And like I, I tell everyone, education is the key to change people's lives. So when you get a chance to give people a, a chance, make sure you're looking at the person inside and not your own biases on why that person can't become who they want to become. And because I'm glad that people gave me that opportunity. Otherwise, I might be like the other boys in my neighborhood. I have nothing to add to that apart from we'll see you all next week. This is Everyday Leadership. <laughs>